0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Sports. My name is Keith Rathbone. I'm calling you here from Macquarie University. I'm here with Natalie Cook or Koch if you are a pronouncer of German, and she is the associate professor of geography at the Maxwell School and at Syracuse Uni- University and also the editor of a, a new book from Rutledge called Critical Geographies of Sport. Space, Power, and Sport in Global Perspective. Natalie, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here.
0: I I, um, was really happy that we could uh, get this interview together. Your book, um, for me, as somebody coming from a sports history background, uh, was fascinating uh, to see uh, uh, maybe a common set of issues and questions Related to how governments use sports to promote their own legitimacy or how um, People use sports as a way to integrate or, or not integrate into society, but from the perspective of space um, and, and just with a different set of tools and and kind of initial questions uh, So I, I, I wanted to start out by saying this was just a really uh, fascinating uh, set uh, uh, of, of essays And I guess I wanted to start by learning a little bit more about you, how you came to study sports, um, you know, more generally. And then how did you develop this specific um, book project, this edited volume?
1: Yeah, thank you. So I... When I was a, a student from, from day one, I went into geography. I was very fortunate to fall into the discipline very early, but many students tend to find uh, geography much later if they end up with a um, an undergraduate degree or a graduate degree in uh, in geography. It's a relatively small discipline within the U.S., so I... When I came to geography as a discipline, I wasn't really aware of the full breadth of it because it it is very, very um, far-reaching in terms of the coverage. And as an undergraduate, I didn't really know that sports geography existed as a subfield. I knew a few corners of the discipline, but uh, as a geography major, it, it really wasn't on my radar but I was doing my dissertation research as a graduate uh, student in, in uh, geography. And my dissertation work was on Astana, Kazakhstan's new capital city. And for anybody who's familiar with the cycling world uh, is, is well aware that there has been a cycling team, Team Astana, uh, for, for many years now. And so because I was, I was using the capital city project as a way to open up bigger questions of politics and identity and geopolitics, how that was all working through the images and the narratives of the capital city. Uh, and indeed, it is, it is kind of odd to have <laughs> a cycling team or any team uh, named for a, uh, a, a capital city on you know the, the world tour stage and the international stage. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, the team itself was funded by Kazakhstan's Sovereign wealth fund. So this struck me as as something of uh, something rather perplexing. And when I was in Kazakhstan during uh, one of the Tour de France victories of Alberto Contador. Everybody in Kazakhstan was very interested in this particular victory. And even though, you know, Contador is not um, not from Kazakhstan, had almost no attachment to Kazakhstan, he was racing for Team Astana. Uh, And people across Kazakhstan kept telling me that uh, Kazakhstan won the Tour de France. And that just struck me as, as such an odd thing to say. And I really wanted to understand this and to get more into these questions of how it is that uh, you have this this confluence of um, actors and money and people coming from all around the world to create this this particular cycling team in the name of the capital city project of uh, of, of Kazakhstan, which you know at, at that point in time, people in the West probably mostly encountered through images of Borat, right? Um, and a lot of the a lot of these images around you know around the sports team and other things uh, that the government has really invested in has been in response to the Borat uh, fiasco, as I kind of think of it there. So I, um, I started to do more, more research on the, this team and, and did interviews with people and focus groups uh, to get an understanding of how people were talking about the team and who they understood um, as, as being part of it. So this is really what, what got me first going into, into the topic of sports, but it was never, it was never really anything I thought I would pursue in the, you know, in, in the, in a, in a more substantial way. Uh, but I, I saw very quickly that people were very interested in this topic, and I ended up giving a number of lectures related to this. Students uh, love to engage with sports in classes and geography, and especially when you're talking about things that are quite tricky, uh, like authoritarianism which is you know one of one of the major topics that i focus on uh and and other sorts of things about politics and resource economies and how governments that have a lot of resource wealth choose to invest that you know as i mentioned it was the sovereign wealth fund uh taking kazakhstan's oil and gas revenues and putting that into a cycling team to pay some europeans to bring pride to the country on the international stage those are those are kind of unusual patterns to see. So I, I really have just tried to use that as an entry point uh to, to reach students and different audiences. So I've you know, over over some time of working on this topic and encountering other people in geography who kind of had a similar experience as me where they had a really intense you know interest in something related to sports and i should also add you know here in, in this discussion of the cycling team that i myself am a cyclist uh so i was interested in in understanding it from that angle as well uh so i met a number of people that had their own sort of sporting interests perhaps and had been following that as critical geographers but always on the side and it was just a, a little you know as we, as we sometimes say, a dessert research project. Uh, you do it when you have the time and it's, you know, it's not something that you can really get your whole sustenance on, um, and make your career on, but it, it sort of made, it made a lot of uh a lot of the academic hurdles that we have to jump through somewhat more pleasant and that's certainly been my experience so i started to to find these um these kindred spirits in in geography and ended up putting together several uh panel sessions at uh at two geography conferences i think it was 2014 and 2015 so we had the annual geography meetings and um each of, those, each of those events, we pulled in people from, that participated in that into this book uh, for the edited collection. And there are you know, there, some people that we weren't able to include for various reasons, um, and this kind of comes out in the, in the beginning where I talk about why it is that geography or sports geography hasn't really been taken very seriously, is that uh, in some cases, or at least in one case in particular, A PhD student had an absolutely fantastic paper, but he was being pressured by his advisor not to contribute to the book because he thought it would hurt him on the job market to have done research on sports. Uh, and so he was told explicitly, don't do it. Um, and, you know, I think that that, that was a shame because he, he was doing some really, really fascinating, fantastic research. And, and I wish that we were able to include him. But it also kind of keyed me into this bigger issue uh, within geography as a discipline. And in particular, uh, just this idea that, that this isn't really Really serious work, or that it really can only be a side project, and certainly for younger scholars, they shouldn't be dabbling in this. You know, obviously, some people don't really agree with that. Myself being in that camp, uh, but nonetheless, it, it made me realize that in my position as um, as a, a you know so still a young scholar, but now I have tenure, I have uh, the wherewithal to put together this collection and really sort of champion a critical approach to sports geography and say this doesn't we don't need to accept this narrative uh but younger scholars especially you know graduate students they're not in a position to push that that student who was told don't study this or don't publish on this was not necessarily in a position of power to to push back against that uh so i've I really felt that this is something i i'm I enjoy doing, uh, but I also think that it's important to you know sort of build that sense of community and demonstrate to younger scholars that this work can be serious. And then as that continues to grow, uh, to hopefully advance a critical approach to geography such that you wouldn't have in the future a professor tell his student that um that this shouldn't that this shouldn't be a topic to be published on but to actually be very supportive and and um encouraging of that kind of work
0: yeah i think that that's um that tension that maybe many uh, people who work in sports studies uh can relate to um i think that's that's probably been a a part of many of our lives. Uh, I, I know, I know myself, I had the same kind of, um, even, even now I oftentimes get into conversations uh, with myself about whether I should define myself as a French historian interested in sports or as a sports historian in France. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so I think we're all kind of it. it and I think your book does a lot to do, to, to, as you say, advance a kind of more critical, um, a a more critical and, and rigorous, um, way of examining sport. So you're not, and you're not just, this isn't, uh, I, for, for people interested in, in reading this edited volume, this isn't just a kind of, of collection that's, um, put together because these, all these authors are interested in, in geography and sports. You're also all engaging with, um, what you're calling the practice of, of critical uh geography and you're you're drawing um inspiration from uh uh, another or earlier scholar john bale so i wonder if you can unpack a little bit um what you all mean within the discipline of geography when you talk about critical geography and who john bale is and and what does studying sports bring to the table um when you're engaging in this kind of critical geography what kinds of of, of different types of questions, or maybe different angles on the same questions, does sports uh, avail uh, to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the The way that I talk about, or I sort of introduce critical geography in the in the volume and, and elsewhere in my own research is, you know, there, there's been there's been a push in many academic circles, not just in geography, but to talk about, um, you know, critical fill in the blank. Uh, and often what, I mean, everybody seems to have a different take on what that means, and there might be some people who who see critical research in the social sciences as coming from a particular theoretical angle. Uh, so you know, you can have post-structuralism or post-colonialism. Um, you might see some people grouping feminist theory into this. Uh, Marxist approaches sometimes get looped in here as well. So there's all different range of of pulling on these these different theoretical Camps. Um, I don't think it's very useful to distinguish between those different camps. Rather, what I see as a commonality across what people are kind of subsuming under this critical umbrella is an interest in power and to me that's the sort of unifying thread and I know that that's you know obviously all of these different theoretical approaches are going to approach power in a different way but they nonetheless have an interest in understanding the politics and the power relations that play out in whatever um, topic they're researching but then also a kind of reflexivity of the power and the Political positioning of the researcher uh, themselves. So, trying to bring those perspectives into um, into sports geography, I think, is something that has been uh, the the earliest work that you really see is coming from John Bale, as you mentioned. Uh, the the effort to focus on um, political relations in this kind of research is is quite significant. I think at, at the early years when he was writing uh, initially back in the, the early eighties, because geography at that time was very quantitative and there are still you know there, there's large segments of the discipline that, that are more interested in modeling and mapping and just using mapping technologies uh, to come up with some um, some statistical answer to a question that they might have and so you can still see this a couple of years ago at the geography conferences I'm sure there's probably still people doing this kind of research now where they're, they're just interested in seeing how you can use GIS technologies, Geographic Information Systems technologies, uh, to map um, like the, um, the the spectatorship of a, of a particular team or uh, looking at where college athletes are recruited from and just using mapping technologies to tell us that information. Um, to me, sports geography or critical sports geography or a critical sports geography needs to go one step further, right? It's to ask uh, about the, the the political relations that you are actually mapping, and then also to reflect on your role as a researcher and um, how you are engaging with these sorts of technologies of mapping and knowing. So, not to just leave it there but to go one one step further to look at the power dynamics of of research and of whatever it is you're researching uh so again i think in in the early days when john bill was was writing on uh, sports geography um geography was still very much focused on um on this more sort of you know, quantitative mapping approach to things, and this was though at the time, you know, in a number of, across a number of different science, so, social sciences, people were starting to get more interested in social theory and uh, reading a number, a, a number of scholars from. Um, you know, in the in the uh, Foucauldian tradition that I'm mostly rooted in myself, uh, from from Foucault's work and others, kind of in that in that direction, and actor network theory. And this is kind of the late '80s when we start to really see this the rise of um, feminist theory in in across the social sciences. So this. Starts to come to a number of the social sciences, including geography. And for me, when I say critical theory and critical geography, I'm interested, you know, in in that sort of broader shift to think about and to prioritize power in the study uh, of the various the various topics that we're all interested in. Um, and then from uh, from there, I think you know we start to see a number of people across across the discipline and in, in their various subfields engaging with this um but for for whatever reason well actually probably because sports geography is simply small and not hasn't hadn't really come to its own at that point in time uh the critical approach never really took so john bale was an absolutely prolific author um put together an astonishing number of you know monographs edited collections uh all range of work but he was you know he 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 didn't seem to to the, the field itself didn't seem to necessarily ossify into uh something something too much broader uh than him and a handful of colleagues within within geography and you know he worked across the discipline or, you know across disciplinary lines as well uh such that you know by the time i came to start doing research on this about uh, probably seven years ago or so uh this still didn't there still wasn't really a strong sense that sports geography could be something more than it is even though he had already laid that groundwork as as had a number of others you know there's there's obviously another a number of other scholars like Rooney um and and some and a handful uh but you know it just it just hadn't really ossified into a into a a mainstream approach within sports geography
0: so then in in some ways the the larger and in fact I, i i think it's fair to say the broader goal of this um edited volume is not just to illuminate these separate um but interconnected questions uh that all the authors are dealing with and i they all they do all center around the question of power and power relation but also to to articulate um a kind of new approach or more rigorous approach to the study of sport within geography. And then perhaps even more, I'm sorry, (laughs) perhaps even more also, I, I, um, there's a, there's an interesting almost activist uh, call at the end of your um, introduction to, or maybe at the end of your conclusion um, at at the end of your conclusion um, that, that gestures towards using these tools in, in a social justice um space i thought that was pretty interesting
1: yeah so you know i think the the one of the major reasons i wanted to keep a broader approach to what critical theory would mean in the volume is that i don't believe in i mean i i, I truly do feel like a lot of um theoretical frameworks are they're built upon a kind of authoritarian ethic And that is that this is the right approach. and that's really it uh so you know i don't i don't believe in that i believe that academia and theoretical frameworks uh should be pluralistic and i i think that that's really important to allow people the space students as much as you know established scholars to give people the space uh to think through the different theoretical tools that might be useful for them i mean i i will refuse to adhere to any particular theory because I don't think theory is is dogma. I think it's a set of tools that you might apply systematically uh, when, when it's useful. So I think because of my, you know, my personal commitment to maintaining that pluralism uh, I wanted to make sure that I gave the authors in the collection a f- the freedom and the space to do that uh, and to approach that in any number of ways that they might that they might choose and I think one of the one of the interesting tensions, the difficult tensions for many scholars who are interested in social theory and, you know, if, it's, if they want to call it critical, radical, uh, whatever it is, many, many people are deeply committed to social justice and thinking about how, uh, how their research might be used to you know to transform the world for good into something more just and that's not usually that's that's not always an easy question to answer in fact it's a very difficult question to answer as academics uh, so you know i think each of the each of the chapters thinks about power in a different way but often when you know, when ending a research study um, in a country that is not your own, it's very difficult to say this is what we should do to achieve justice in this particular situation, Uh, not just because of that difference between the researcher and the researched, uh, but also because you know, uh, in a number of cases, a vast majority of cases in my view, that's really quite ambiguous. So there, you know, how do, how do you necessarily assess what is the right or wrong thing to do in a particular situation? So I think the the chapter that I've co-authored as the conclusion together with Dave Jansen is to get people to reflect on what social justice means in, um, in how they're approaching it in their work and to think about the multiple axes of that within sports um you know sports studies more generally because it's it's not clear how you um how you set your priorities in this particular case right because the different axes of political divide that we see kind of playing out in the book There's, uh, you know, things to give the example of Lisa Nelson's chapter on uh, Latinos playing soccer in fields in rural Georgia. And the exclusions that these people feel, it is very much along the Latino non Latino divide, but it is also internal to the community in terms of men versus women uh, and how men. And women experience that, um, that, that act of playing soccer on the weekends, uh, with some friends quite differently in that particular context. Uh, then you can look at, you know, just, just taking one example of, environmental issues and the environmental impact of sport that is another completely different way of thinking about what social justice and equality means than necessarily uh, just the the focus on race or migration um, status of your documentation uh, versus gender the environmental implications yes they often have connections to those axes. Uh, but nonetheless, the kinds of the kinds of problems that you would be focusing on if you took a um, took that lens. Are going to be somewhat different, right? So, what we we're, we're hoping to do in the conclusion is just to open that up a bit more and to say, you know, we have all these different axes of difference, um, but to kind of leave it leave it somewhat open in terms of how people are comfortable engaging uh, engaging with those um, uh, with those different issues. One thing I always tell my Tell my students and pretty much anybody who will listen. So one of my my favorite quotes from um, the French theorist Michel Foucault. He talks about politics as a kind of aesthetics, right? And for Foucault, uh, his personal political interests were related to. Um, to uh, to prison reform I mean that's just one one of his his handful of issues that he was particularly interested in but he saw this as you know a, a a personal inclination to address this, and he was very passionate about this. But he understood that many people didn't necessarily share that passion and that their passion might lie somewhere else. And that is, you know, and that's why he kind of frames it as a kind of aesthetics. How you personally are positioned and your own preferences and your own abilities and your own skill set are going to come into how you are thinking about what issues uh, are, are important for you to address if you're Interested in these social justice questions, uh, or these questions of power and politics, because again, when you're when you're thinking in a, a broader sense, and especially as, as I do, work in authoritarian contexts. Opposition and resistance and social change doesn't happen through the same channels that we, you know, sort of have this essential uh, essentialist liberal understanding of, of opposition and resistance and change uh, through free speech and demonstration and protest and elections and all those sorts of things. What if those are closed down to you? How do you make change? What sort of ways do people find into the system to challenge those power relationships or alter those power relationships or at least benefit from those power relationships? None of that is really... is is really clear from from many of the a a great deal in my opinion of the great deal of the research on liberal context so again here just trying to open it up to say there there are broader ways of thinking about social justice uh that that we hope you know including chapters from liberal democracies and authoritarian states can help shine a little bit of light on that
0: Yeah, I, 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 I think readers should know, uh, listeners should know, uh, just how um, diverse the, the range of, of essays you can find in this edited volume. I mean, people addressing questions of stadium construction and, and, and deconstruction in Seoul, um, the several articles related to the integration of immigrants in different places, um, in the United States and Georgia, for example, as you mentioned, but also in, in Ireland, um, professional wrestling uh, uh, <laughs> in territory, which was particularly uh, interesting um, to me, as well as, as a series of articles that relate to author- authoritarian regimes. And you, you've divided uh, this up in your volume into the first half of the book dealing with uh sports and state spaces um and then the second half dealing with sports and community and urban spaces your, your your uh contribution is in is in the first part of the book and and, and you're looking at uh athletic autocrats and, and and unpacking in some ways how um how autocrats use athleticism um in particular ways so i wonder if you can talk us through uh through your own work in the volume for a minute, how did you come to this project, and, and what what, is, what what do we need to know about uh, autocratic sportsmen?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I've because I work in the post post Soviet world, I uh, have worked there for so many years. I you know, I, I've obviously seen all of the images of. Of Vladimir Putin uh doing different Shirtless, sports.
0: Uh, riding horse and
1: yeah exactly judo is what he you know where he really got his start but since becoming president of Russia then he's all of a sudden doing all these other sports and and there are these very coordinated photo ops right uh, so it's, it's really quite impressive to um to to see the array of these images but it's not just putin number one so i I noticed this certainly because i work primarily in in central asia and in kazakhstan and in turkmenistan uh, the president is constantly photographed uh, doing doing sports as well so i had started to do research on this some some years before i actually ended up writing this chapter and, it, you know, there, there's actually a number of cases in non-authoritarian contexts where you have the leaders being photographed uh, doing sports. So there's kind of, um, you know, this whole thing in and around uh, the, one of the Clinton-Gore election campaigns where they're doing sports together. And there's always a commentary in the United States media about the, the, um, the leader's Athleticism or <clears throat> lack of <laughs> athleticism, in some cases, uh, right. So, anyways, this is this is a common thing, and um, I I noticed as well as I, as I started to do more research on this that. Um, Putin wasn't the only one in history to have uh, have been photographed shirtless doing sports, but that, in fact, um, Mussolini was perhaps the first one to do this. And Mus- there were tons of pictures of Mussolini uh, shirtless skiing, was the most famous one, but he's doing all sorts of other things shirtless. Uh, so, you know, this this got me thinking about uh, the, the sort of cultural divides and differences of these leaders doing uh, sports. Words. So, as I mentioned, because I'm a scholar with authoritarianism, I was most interested in explaining this in authoritarian contexts. Uh, and so, what I wanted to do in the chapter that I wrote on athletic autocrats is simply to ask: Why does this happen? What is the reason for this? And why do we see this across so many uh, so many countries? And across history like this is this is not an isolated phenomenon so what i decided to do in the end was to choose um to choose three different autocratic leaders and to think about how they've been portrayed as sportsmen and i should note here i did not find any
0: uh, yeah i wanted to ask you about that actually <laughs>
1: yeah 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 i mean the i The, the way I sort of come to it is maybe a facile explanation, but I I mean, there's just, there simply aren't many women autocrats, uh, that are, that are heads of state. So you could, you could certainly find, uh, a few women that, that might classify as such, but I, I didn't find any that were, um, uh, that were actually being portrayed as doing athletics. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of cultural reasons for that. And that is, in fact, what, where I wanted to go with this chapter is to think about the gender performance of... Of these these pictures, right, uh, portraying the leader as um, as an athlete, there's a there's a certain construction of masculinity that happens through these photographs and through their circulation and the um, uh, you know in the political uh, community where where they're uh, where they're grounded. So I wanted I wanted to think then also. Uh, and contribute to some of the research and, you know, various um, interdisciplinary uh, discussions about gender and identity. And there's a strong direction of this in sports studies as well, thinking about the body um, and the gendered experiences of sport. But here thinking or focusing more on masculinity right? Uh, because I think that that's, you know, in, in gender studies overall, I, I, I simply think that's there's, there's a lot more that needs to be said about that, especially in authoritarian regimes. So how do we then see different cultural understandings and constructions of masculinity coming out through these photographs? So I focus on... Um, for this particular chapter, I focus on uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, Chairman Mao in China, uh, who was portrayed as, as, um, uh, as, as a swimmer, and in uh, the third case is Sheikh Zayed, who is known as the founding father of the Emirates of the UAE, which is another country where I also do research so I just wanted to think about, you know, I, I didn't want to make any overgeneralizations about how masculinity works through these pictures, but to actually try and ground that in some specific cases. Um, so there's a different kind of performance of the of the masculine ideal and the the leader as having this um, this particular strong hand or just being particularly virile. In the case of Putin, right, that that comes out and gets portrayed through these. Um, Um, Through these images. And there's a different kind of masculinity than um, when you're looking at somebody like Sheikh Zayed, who, in terms of sports, is primarily framed as a lover of falconry, or a number of the other leaders, the current leaders in the UAE, as lovers of equestrian sport. So there there are different constructions of the images around the care of the animal and the sort of paternalism that is being displayed there versus, you know, Putin going out in the you know, rough countryside of Russia and, and connecting with the land in that way. Uh, there's also a different construction of the homeland in the Arabian Peninsula, where the falconry and the, the horse racing or in camel racing and other other sort of heritage, quote unquote, heritage sports that are playing out in the desert and that sort of landscape. So it's the construction of um, masculinity in and through these landscapes as well uh, that that is uh is is what i'm sort of getting to in this particular approach and i think to um to to come back to one of your earlier questions about the 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 special focus on space and place of geography allows us to really pull pull apart some of those geographic differences and to point to how different the cult of personality around Putin is from Mao from Idi Amin from uh, Sheikh Sayed to uh, to Mussolini right we might talk about it as if it's this is a uniform phenomenon but really you have to understand the political geography the cultural geography all those sort of social elements coming together to to help understand why uh, why these autocrats use Sports and images of sports in in the way that they do.
0: Yeah, this chapter in particular, and I'm not just saying that because we're talking, (laughs) but um, I'm also interested in the way in which authoritarian regimes use sports and the ways in which autocrats use sports. Um, But I, I, I loved the kind of different tensions we could see Um, When you pull these three autocrats together, especially uh, Sheikh Zayed, who I was not as familiar with um, this kind of uh, discourse around around him. And it's a very different, as you suggest, discourse of masculinity that seems focused not only on these heritage games and very much um, in line with the specific um, uh, desert dwelling communities of the, of the Emirates, but also seems to focus on a kind of mastery, you know, that, uh, that that's very different from the kind of almost virile, um, you know, judo shirtless, uh, of, 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 Putin. And so there may be different, different models of, of, of what at times, um, you refer to as their super human nature, their super humanity, um, but at the same time, they also have, uh, you know, P- Putin, maybe more than Sheikh Syed has to uh, portray himself as almost, uh, I, I've been in Australia too long. I wanted to use the word blokish, like an ordinary sports, uh, you know, somebody ordinarily interested in sports and not just doing this um, uh, because uh, he needs to have a political, a, a political image, but also to be an authentically sporty person. Right.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Well, and I mean, I, again, I think that comes back to the the various cultural and social, and political differences in a place like Russia uh, versus the UAE. So, there's that each of these each of these men is working within within a different. Um, they're, they're circulating with different groups, right? So, when when we talk about something like the cult of personality or uh, the this idea of a cult of personality one of the one of the biggest challenges of even just that frame the cult um, I mean there's a there's a a strong thread of orientalism that gets uh, that gets woven in there right but overall the 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 falseness of this construction of the the, the dear leader as a as superhuman is that. The dear leader as a singular entity exists as such. Uh, and rather than, you know, acknowledging that Putin is only powerful because, well, he has a whole network of people that are constantly kowtowing and, and, and doing everything in their power to please him. Uh, but they're also very much interested in maintaining that idea that Putin does everything. Uh, because that means that then they can, they can advance themselves in a way that deflects attention from certain political relations that they have. And so this is, this is um, what you certainly saw with the case of Stalin um, and Hitler and others. They very, they had a, they had a wide network of elites who were in that inner circle who were very interested in maintaining that, that myth of the, of the central leader because they were able to skirt around the, um, a skirt around criticism themselves right because it was just the the leader does x and the, and then it's this disjuncture between the implementation but the leader is is pure and his intentions are good um so the this This is a common sort of thing that you have playing out, but nonetheless, with somebody like putin he he has to he has to maintain his position of power in my opinion um as an observer of Russian politics over many years he has to uh, maintain that position at the center because he's he's really his his entire livelihood and existence is is built upon maintaining um his place in these um, in these networks around him. So, with the case of the UAE, it's a rather different kind of um, configuration than post Soviet Russia, where there is much more uh, th- there is much more. Uh, well, I would say a broader sort of consultative culture that that is how politics works, and that that then plays out in. Um, in the way that people exert their influence and demonstrate their masculinity and demonstrate their prowess and their ability to be a good leader. So being able to demonstrate that you are a consultative person with the elites uh is, is something that you're going to see as, as prioritized. So one of the things and I do I do um research on falconry have I've continued to do for many years now probably like 5 years now um research on falconry in the Gulf states and and looking at the connections also in in central asia uh but what the the space of the camp uh, is, is really important in understanding, uh, falconry and why it is, it is seen as a sport that, um, that these, these groups of men go and they do together and they're deciding many important political decisions at the camp, at, around the campfire and that sort of social experience of, um, of that is really important and in a similar fashion as what, I think maybe for the reference for Americans or um, Brits perhaps would be golf, right? A lot of these, the, the social, um, social networks and connections happen uh, through not really the, the playing of golf, right? Who <laughs> really cares what, what your, what your score was at the end of the day. Um, but it's, it's that, venue for materializing these really important power relations so you know i think in in the case of the uae and and falconry there's a similar kind of dynamic for some um some of these elites who are engaging in the sport and continues today
0: i'd like to turn um a little bit to some of the other authors um work uh, uh, and to come back to what you were saying about the particular ways in which sports are being mobilized in the post-Soviet uh, sphere. Two of your co-authors, Slavomir Horek, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing any names, uh, Belipeka Tinkinen, uh, it's, I'm sure mispronounced, uh, both w- worked on, on sport in the post-Soviet sphere. I, I wonder if there's something uh, maybe particular about the way in which um authoritarian governments uh companies uh um cities are working together in these post-soviet spaces to to use sports in new ways or or are we just seeing um maybe reflections of what's already been done in new places Mm
1: -hmm. yeah so uh, there's to, to me, there's certainly been a long-standing aspiration across uh, the post-Soviet space to host uh, these major sporting events, what I refer to as sort of first-tier sporting events. Uh, but because of the various political difficulties in, in a number of the countries across the region, they're really only ending up with second-tier events. Uh, and that's, that's an example of what uh is looking at in his chapter on uh, Turkmenistan's Asian Games in 2017. And what you should note about the Asian Games in 2017 is it's not really the full proper Asian Games. It was just the inner, um, the indoor martial arts games. There's just a little a little segment of that. Um, and, and Slavomir's chapter talks a, a bit about this, and I've also ri- written um another article elsewhere with a colleague uh, from Azerbaijan, uh, Anar Valev, on exactly this topic of how it is that that these particular countries end up hosting all these second tier events like the the Asian Games. Uh, you know Kazakhstan has hosted that as well. Uh, Azerbaijan hosted the European Games uh, a couple of years ago, and what you see common across these particular countries, and the ones, you know, I'll first talk about the the Central Asian cases, and I'll come back to Russia, uh, which is what Velipika's article is about, or chapter is about these these. These countries are all, so Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, they all have pretty substantial oil and gas resources. And the way that they're, um, that the, the governments have you know, sort of formed in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91 has very much been t- tied to developing those resources and in, investing them in major infrastructure projects. And the infrastructure projects, yes, they do materialize certain things uh, like big (laughs) stadiums and new capital cities, uh, amongst other sorts of iconic architecture and big expensive projects. But what this sets in motion is the possibility to use state money money from the sovereign wealth fund, from the administration um, central budget to fund these projects, infrastructure, like stadium, whatever it is. So they're taking state money um, and putting that to these projects by and large. I mean, across, across the region, it is um, it's pretty endemic is that these, these are, I, I just will be blunt, big money laundering schemes. So, if you look at the construction companies that are building um, these various projects, they're almost all headquartered. They are all headquartered offshore, offshore being, you know, just in another country from the the country where the projects are being built. So the big construction companies are overpaid for what they are building and are then able to get that money offshore and into personal bank accounts um, via, you know, all sorts of convoluted processes, which we probably know the most about in the case of Azerbaijan, courtesy of the Panama Papers. Uh, But, you know, there's fortunately been... Quite a bit of um, recent, uh, you know, information that is that has been given about these schemes. Nonetheless, the sporting events really allow this to happen because it gives a justification for putting more and more money into these iconic projects. Um, so, to come back to the case of Turkmenistan and the and what Slavomir's chapter is, is focusing on, the. Um, The government of Turkmenistan put billions of dollars into building this Olympic Park area. And ostensibly, you know, this is because, well, they need the sporting facilities for this Asian Games in 2017. There was absolutely... um, no no need for the kind of facilities and the kind of money that they put into this but nonetheless it was used uh used as a justification for this kind of um this kind of development and to push that forward so uh this is something that you that you see elsewhere in the region and in russia it's, it's a similar dynamic, although rather more diffuse. Uh, so I think one of the interesting things about the World Cup in 20, um, 2018, so last year, was that all of a sudden you had these, these kind of investments getting spread across Russia. Uh, whereas when you had the, um, the, the Olympics in Sochi, much of that investment and the companies and the people that were benefiting, uh, directly from the sort of state largesse uh, were rather concentrated. So sometimes, you know, the, the, the physical geography of the country really matters and a significant understanding how these um, revenues get distributed and patronage gets distributed through the country and through the different political networks. Um, you know, such a, you know, you have uh, something more diffuse in, in Russia versus Turkmenistan versus uh, Kazakhstan. I think what, one thing, though, that we really wanted to do across the collection is to bring in perspectives that weren't just focused on the Olympics or focused on the major um, mega events, right? Because to the extent that geographers have done work on this, you know, on on sports in recent years, it is almost exclusively located in the realm of um, mega events. So what I wanted to do in, in putting together this collection was to make sure that we didn't just reproduce one of the those volumes because there are many now. Um and so I, I was very happy. Oh go ahead. I, I was Sorry.
0: gonna say I actually saw some interesting parallels uh between uh Slavomir's articles and then articles in the later section um written by uh uh young uh wooly and um Michael Friedman talking about uh stadium in 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 Seoul and then the construction of mall parks and in, in, in the United States. Um, for me, it was fascinating to consider the, the ways in which um, some of uh, the, the the more critical lens that we could apply to projects that we see in sort of the post-Soviet space or um, generally within the global south, when we turn a similar critical lens at our construction projects in the United States or in South Korea, or I'm sure across much of the world, <laughs> it doesn't look so different, does it? <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Well, and that's, that's always a point that I make when I um, when I give lectures on you know in the last year I did a lot of a lot of public lectures on the World Cup in Russia and well probably because I'm I'm sitting now in Doha Qatar which is hosting the 2022 game so I've been working in the Gulf for, for quite a long time but whenever I, I, I speak on this topic at lectures or speaking with students I constantly come back to the way that we see a lot of um, the same dynamics playing out in ostensibly Western liberal democratic contexts so with with the example of the London games you had evictions in and around the stadia and East End Uh, you saw a lot of very authoritarian practices playing out on the ground in Rio uh, with favela relocations and and other sorts of dynamics and you also obviously have the, the, the big example of the Montreal Games in Canada, uh, you know, the, the the city was only able to pay off its debt <laughs> from the Olympic Stadium. I think it was in twenty thirteen or something, right? Massive corruption scandal around that, um, and and those those things are are often forgotten. And so, whenever I I present about these authoritarian countries where I do research, I, I do try to come back to that um, particular point. But I think the the broader the broader challenge then is how we see uh, how, how we see sporting bodies facilitating or pushing back against um, that as a possibility, right? So, what uh, what we what we see in terms of the behavior and the decisions of FIFA and the IOC in recent years is you know, <laughs> they seem to be pretty on board with this. And they're they're happy to profit from that, right? So when when the media is just kind of demonizing these authoritarian places and, and critiquing their human rights abuses, et cetera, et cetera, to my mind, we need to be talking about who are the actors that are facilitating this. Because I can guarantee you there's a lot of complicity from western construction companies from various consulting companies um energy and power suppliers uh all range of suppliers uh that are interested in this just as much as there is you know then the institutional frameworks like people in um fifa and the ioc who are who are facilitating this so i you know obviously we should be worried about these other human rights issues but i think that if that so dominates the coverage of these major sporting events and what have you that we fail to look back um, on what and, and who is actually promoting that from ostensibly democratic context we, we don't really get anywhere uh, so so that's, that, that's sort of something I've, I've been interested in thinking about for some time now but I, I appreciate the point of making that connection and I think you know um, Jungwoo this uh chapter on Korea's uh, Dongdaemun Stadium is is really fantastic because he you know he he traces this in terms of the history as well, uh, and and shows us how the the vision and the ideas about the the baseball stadium in Korea have changed so dramatically over decades, and how that plays out in municipal politics, and how the municipal politics are also shifting as we see the um we see the understanding of the stadium coming uh coming to the end or the eventuality of being demolished and re- replaced with a design plaza uh and then the stadium itself being relocated on the outskirts of the city and a completely different you know style and type of stadium uh which which is all to say you know there, there's a longer life to a lot of these projects than the very narrow temporal focus that we often end up with uh, when we just focus on the the mega events um, but i did i did want to just quickly come back to velipeka's chapter on uh, on russia because i think there's also a point about the the spatial diffusion of a number of these these initiatives and how authoritarian governments but other other governments as well they 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 have, uh, our sporting events and sporting programs have a much broader spatial extent than is often really acknowledged. And I think Belipeka's article, a chapter showing how, um, Gazprom, the, the Russian, uh, gas company, Uses sports, uh, in in a way to kind of you know he talks about it in terms of capillary power to extend its reach into all of these various corners across Russian territory, uh, and and to bring that to to life across space. So the you know we we can think about the uh, about the different times and the different spaces of of sport in a much more productive manner if we if we get beyond the sort of spectacle of the mega event right and because the power of the spectacle is to pull your attention to what's at the center and it's more immediate more centralized temporality and, and spatiality uh, but but what i think a lot of the chapters do very well is to show that it, there's there's something much more diffuse and if we just train our eye on what is more diffuse uh, we might have a different understanding of, of how power is working in these in these different spaces and times
0: Well, great. Um, and with that, I guess I'd like to pose our, our last question, which is Natalie, what are you working on now? What can we look forward to hearing about soon?
1: So I, uh, I am working on a handful of, of projects. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm still doing research on falconry. This is, uh, one, one aspect of the research I've been doing in the Gulf countries is looking at heritage sports. Uh, and here again, trying to, to shift beyond just thinking about the, the mega events in the area, although they're, are quite a few uh, large events large sporting events being hosted in the gulf countries and qatar and the uae is where I, I have been focusing my research in the last um in the last years so i ha- i first started to go to travel to doha which i mentioned I'm, is is where i am at the moment back in 2012 uh, so since then you know and by the time world cup uh, arrives in um in 2022 i will have been watching the city uh transform and get ready for for the games for a period of about 10 years so it has been um you know kind of a longer term approach to just watching and observing what what uh is playing out in the region i've also been uh, i've been working on some research in the last last several weeks and you know, Paying attention to this somewhat before, uh, looking at Gulf uh, sponsorship of international sporting teams, and probably you know the, what people know best is probably the Emirates and all of the, the the European football clubs and and other clubs around the world. In fact, that they sponsor with the big Fly Emirates logo. But uh, there's you know there's also Etihad and Qatar Airways. So I'm looking at those three airlines. As well as um, several of the elites who are from the Emirates and from Qatar who own uh, various um, various teams in the area. So Yes. Yeah. Ex- exactly so sheikh mansour of the emirates who owns um, man city manchester city uh, there's also sheikh nasser bin hamad al khalifa who uh, who is behind the new cycling team uh, bahrain merida um, emirates also sponsors a cycling team now as well so i'm looking at you know the 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 role of these gulf Individuals, companies, sovereign wealth funds, and others who are, um, who are putting money into international sports. And, and they're again kind of asking a a similar set of questions as mentioned before of how and why are they doing this? Because I don't think it's as simple as what a lot of people say. You know, it's just the Gulf, Gulf countries trying to promote a positive image on the international stage. Okay, sure. There's a piece of that. Um, but if you look at the, the um, Emirati and the Qatari elites who are sponsoring this, they also identify as athletes, and it's a particular interest of them. But they're also pulling sovereign wealth fund money into these projects. And it, it is very much seen as a particular kind of investment. And uh, in some cases, they're okay with losing certain royal wealth. Uh, but in other cases, when you've got the sovereign wealth fund, and the big airlines involved, they are very much after certain profits uh so i'm trying to there again just tell a, a more diffuse story about why we see the rise of of gulf uh, sports sponsorship especially after 2008 um, when we saw the uh, financial crash or the, the, the global financial crisis as well as in 2009 the financial fair play regulations coming into uh, or being adopted in um, uefa such that european football teams were not to be losing money uh lest they be sanctioned lest they be sanctioned so th- this you know sort of confluence events and interests as has what has been uh, behind a lot of this so that's that's just a handful of the things that i'm working on but obviously uh looking looking at the developments in uh in doha and seeing all of the the stadiums going up around the city it's um it's it's significant even You know, it was, it was already uh, a World Cup. Under the international eye, but now that Qatar is under blockade and has been since June 2017 from its neighbors, um, the the politics of the blockade has absolutely been playing out through uh, through sports and Qatar's winning of the the Asia Cup in Abu Dhabi when I was there a couple of weeks ago was quite dramatic, um, and uh, you know there there's a number of things that are that are really fascinating to watch in terms of how, um, how these politics in the GCC region, you know, the, the, the world at large, play out through, um, through these major sporting events, but also then you know, in just the corporate sponsorships like Emirates um, sponsoring PSG uh, and that deal ending because, well, it is a, it is a, a team uh, owned by uh, a Qatari businessman. So, you know, th- these, th- these are the, the general things that I think is so powerful about sport is um, being able to look at, as I mentioned before, something very tricky and politically difficult, uh, but through something that's a little bit more familiar and easier to understand uh, for, for many of us who are interested in the sporting world.
0: Thank you so much again, Natalie, for joining us. Um, this has been Keith Rathbone. I'm speaking today with Natalie Cook, Associate Professor of Geography at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University and the editor of a, of a really fascinating edited volume that you all should check out from Rutledge called Critical Geographies of Sport Space, Power and Sport in Global Perspectives. Uh, thank you all very much for listening to New Books in Sports. Thank you Natalie for joining us That's goodbye for me.
1: Thank you. Bye.